Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Engagement at Fresh Energy. Today, I'm here with you to share a recording of our recent webinar, unpacking some of Fresh Energy's favorite things that happened at the Minnesota Legislature this year. I'm joined on the webinar by Justin Fay, Fresh Energy's Senior Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy, Anna Johnson, Senior Manager, State and Local Affairs, and Michael Noble, Fresh Energy's outgoing executive director. All right, let's jump into the recording. All right, welcome everyone to today's webinar. My name is Joe Olson, and I'll be leading our little adventure today as we dig into some of the forward-looking investments and sound policy outcomes for clean energy and climate at the Minnesota Legislature. My name is Joe Olson, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Engagement and Fresh Energy. Thank you so much for being with us today. Like I said before, that chat function, I think, is on. So go ahead and tell us who you are, where you're joining us from, and what your pronouns are. We also will be using the Q&A function of Zoom. So if you have questions for us to get to at the end of the webinar, please use the Q&A instead of the chat. Uh, if you put your questions into Q&A, uh, you can like and upvote other people's questions, and then those will rise to the top, making it even easier for me to moderate the Q&A portion of today's event. All right, so I know some of you are new to Fresh Energy, so thank you for being with us. Fresh Energy has been working on clean energy and climate policy issues here in Minnesota and throughout the Midwest for 30 years. We are changing the world through bold policy solutions that move us to a just and carbon-free future. And now I want to introduce today's guests and my colleagues. Welcome to Michael Noble. He's the outgoing executive director of Fresh Energy, Justin Fay, senior lead of public affairs and advocacy, and Anna Johnson, senior manager, state and local affairs. Welcome you all. I know you're probably still coming down from session. Um, so I appreciate you taking time so quickly after the end of the session for this debrief webinar. Um, so I know some of you joining us today, uh, we're at our 100% uh, kind of debrief webinar in February of this year. Um, and little did we know then, I guess we maybe had an inkling, um, but it turns out with 100%, Minnesota was just getting started. And I feel like since we're on Zoom, folks can't really see my t-shirt, but I'm wearing a shirt that says vibes up, emissions down. It's the Fresh Energy staff shirt from last year. And I think it's a very fitting t-shirt for what we're going to be talking about today. I'm gonna to stop sharing my screen and I think we can dive into the questions. So uh, Michael, Justin, and Anna, I did the math. And between the three of you, we've got a combined 50 years of work at the Minnesota legislature, and you all have seen more than a few historic climate moments. I'm especially thinking back to 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about how this legislative session specifically stacks up? And Michael, let's start with you, and then we'll go to Justin, and then we'll go to Anna. Well, it's uh, really a fabulous to be able to review this uh, incredible historic legislative session. And it just seems for 15 years, we keep calling 2007 the best legislative session that 
clean energy and climate and environment ever had. Uh, some old timers might argue that uh, the 1973 set, set, uh, session, when we wrote all our original environmental laws, uh, uh, maybe is the is the single most important environmental session in Minnesota history. But oh my gosh, did 2023 blow the doors off of everything that I have experienced? This is a remarkable year with remarkable accomplishments and. They're just way too many accomplishments even to mention today. So let's just stop talking about 2007. Although I, I did see uh, Representative Kate Knuth, uh, one of the all-stars of 2007, pop up on our, on our attendance today. And there were many other really fabulous legislative leaders, uh, Representative Hilty, uh, Senator Anderson, uh, Senator Yvonne Pretner-Solon, uh, Senator Dibble, uh, Representative Kalen, uh, too many to name. Uh, 2007 was a great year, but we're just never going to mention it ever again. Justin, Anna, do you feel the same way? I may still mention it from time to time. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think but, it's an important piece of our history. <laughs> Good to remember where you came from. Um, I mean, I, I can't agree more, though, with what Michael just shared. It, this uh, I mean, we had pretty high expectations coming into this session, and um, we just completely blew those out of the water. Um, and I uh, just can't say enough about the leaders that we have in the Minnesota legislature and in the Walls administration, and then especially in the community of advocates um, that uh, have been working in some cases decades to accomplish some of the things that we accomplished this year. Um, and it 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 all happened so much happened so fast in 2023 that it was sort of was like it was almost like like poof like what like, oh that happened um oh well, there's a multi-year campaign that just came to an end oh there's another one um and you know I, this we only have an hour today so there's no way we can possibly cover everything that happened so i just maybe want to make that point at the outset that we're not going to try to um we're just going to i think talk about a few of the things that we're excited about, um, we'll hopefully have a little bit of time at the end for questions and we can get into some of the things that you all are excited about. Um, but you know, the, we, we had a historic opportunity coming into the year. Um, as great as what the legislature did uh, is, um, you know, the federal government and the Biden administration had laid the groundwork um, and sort of significantly changed, um, raised the ceiling for what is possible and what we should strive for and also what what we can leverage and sort of multiply with the resources that we deployed at the state level this year and that that really created a lot of momentum for change this year um, before the session even started and i i don't think you can really underestimate how impactful that um uh, federal leadership uh has been and continues to be in um uh helping us uh, helping lay the groundwork for the progress that we've made Yeah, it was it was a really fun session. Um, I say that in like kind of a masochistic way because it was extremely busy, but we were busy with just the best kind of policies and support. Um, I just I remember a moment of maybe a few weeks into session when I was realized I was saving all of our letters that we were sub submitting to the committees as fresh energy letter of support. And it was just that over and over and over again. Um, 
So I, I also want to give a shout out to our staff. Um, we had 14 different staff members contribute oral or written testimony 86 times throughout the session. Um, a lot of that was done at, at literally the very last minute, um, very like time sensitive requests coming through. So um, a, a great year and uh, required a lot of work, but um, I think all of our partners and all of our staff should and and do feel really good about what was accomplished this year. I also want to shout out the just incredible community of organizations and advocates working on um, different things this year. It was a very, very collaborative year. Um, and not just across the nonprofit space. We, you know, we worked with utility partners, with labor partners, um, and a wide range of advocates. So yeah, it was it was a good, busy year. Excited to kind of get into some of the details of what passed. Awesome. So now we're heading into my section of the agenda that I've titled our top faves, um, which maybe isn't fair because like everything was our favorite, but we'll do our best to like highlight a few of the things. So let's start with what Justin has coined as flagship wins. So Michael, can you give us like a quick recap on 100%? And when I say quick, I do mean it. <laughs> sure. Well, I could first say that you can go back into our uh, webinar archives and listen to the fabulous uh, webinar we did the day that it was signed into law. It's, uh, I think, one of our best. And uh, it was very emotional after working on that for the last several years. Uh, very simple policy just says if, hey, pal, if you sell electricity to Minnesota, it's got to have no carbon in it. That's the rules. The rules of the game are no carbon allowed. You got 17 years to figure it out and you got to get 80% of the way there by 2030. So that's a simple law. And we gave the uh, co-op utilities a little more time. They have to get to 60% by 2030. That was the last concession that uh, Nick Frentz and Jamie Long made. And one thing I'm really, really proud of is that Nick Frentz and Jamie Long were such incredibly fabulous partners and they worked so closely together. I think they were on the phone every day and no one ever found any daylight between them. They had the exact same position on exact on absolutely every little difficult, tricky, confusing issue. They talked to, with each other. That's why it became law by February 5 as the two legislative bodies uh, became a team. Instead of the House competing with the Senate, the House collaborated with the Senate and they got their bill done in, I think, about, I mean, they were wrapping up all the controversial questions by around January 15th, and it was signed into law the first week of February. So it's a dramatic, historic achievement, and uh, Tim Walls de deserves enormous credit for having the vision. Uh, and I want to shout out to um, each of our three investor-owned utilities by name, Minnesota Power, Otterto Power, XL Energy, and the rural electric co-ops, both their member co-ops and Great River Energy, the uh, generating transmission co-ops, they didn't all actively support the bill, but none of them opposed the bill. So that is a dramatic statement that this isn't a, um, a dangerous, expensive, uh, risky blackout bill, which some partisans called it. This is sensible, practical public policy that our utilities are comfortable with. Perfect, thank you. And now I know 100% set the stage for major climate investments to follow, which was highlighted by the creation of the Minnesota State Competitiveness Fund. Um, Justin, will you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I, I kind of started with the, the lead-in. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been um, uh, three very significant 
pieces of legislation that have passed at the federal level, uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the CHIPS Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. And all of them provide significant resources for um, what maybe you could just generally call climate solutions, uh, clean tech, economic development, workforce development, um, infrastructure build out in ways that are forward looking and climate, climate friendly. Um, but in many cases, particularly uh, for the programs that are funded through the infrastructure law, there are matching requirements. Um, so basically the federal government, if the state puts up 10% or 20%, the low federal government will pay the entire balance. And so if you, as a state, can generate, uh, generate your match, you can leverage an incredible array and, um, and quantity of of federal dollars um, and, and capture those and bring those into, in the, into your state. The competitiveness fund is a, a new program that was proposed by the governor and the Minnesota Department of Commerce um, to basically create a pool of resources that could be used to leverage federal dollars, um, not just for the state, but for entities within the state that qualify for various programs, be, that, be they utilities, local governments, cities, counties, um, and other other actors, other public agencies who who might qualify, um, and thanks to that leadership and and that vision, and that was actually first proposed a year ago, um, uh, and wasn't passed by the legislature in 2022. But the administration brought it back. They brought it back with some more ambitious dollar numbers behind it, um, and that that law was actually passed uh, in April uh, and signed into law. So almost a month before the end of the session, um, $115 million uh, was set aside for the competitiveness fund. Um, and then it got even better um, as 2023 had a way of, of doing this year. Um, and an additional $75 million was passed as part of the omnibus jobs and labor bill uh, in the last week of session. Um, so that brought the session total up to $190 million. Now we're probably going to want to do more over the life, certainly over the life of the uh, of these federal uh, programs. But that's a really, really good, uh, ambitious starting number that's going to position Minnesota to be really competitive uh, for this whole suite of federal programs that are available, um, and really, really make a big difference in terms of our state being able to comply with uh, uh, the 100% law and some of the other uh, ambitious new targets that we've set for ourselves. Perfect. Um, so it's a really big deal that will have significant impacts on our state for a long time to come. So in addition to this historic funding for climate, there were many more highlights for climate and energy as well. So let's start with one that we talked about a lot last year, the electric panel upgrade grants. So Anna, can you run with this one? Yeah, I'd love to. So when you are electrifying your home, um, you're adding maybe an air source heat pump, air source water heater, induction stove, maybe an electric vehicle. You are adding a lot of electric load to your home that might have been built 150 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, before electrification really took off at this level. Um, so an unexpected expense is sometimes just upgrading your electric panel to add the ability to accommodate all of those new devices that you know they add they save emissions but they add electricity load so uh this program uh, establishes a grant for residential properties and particularly low and mid middle income households are eligible for up to 100 percent of upgrade costs 
Um, and multifamily buildings are also eligible. So it's an exciting program. There's six and a half million dollars in it for uh, from the state. And yeah, it was great. We worked with Representative Hollins and Senator Zhang on the bill. And uh, our staff members, Eric Fowler and Mario Heda were also our policy leads on that and did a great job explaining all of the technical parts of uh, what goes into an electric panel and why it's important to upgrade it. Which it turns out there's a lot. Like I think they both walked away, well, after a year plus of deep research, uh, really with a great respect for the engineers in the trade. So, okay. So Justin, I know you have been working on energy codes, both at the Minnesota legislature and beyond for probably longer than you would like to, uh, but obviously codes are a practical and substantive approach to reducing greenhouse gas emissions from the building sector. So tell us a little bit about the Accelerated Commercial Energy Codes Bill. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, well, uh, uh, the building code and specifically the energy code has been um, an area of work that Fresh Energy has um, had a kind of a specialty uh, focus in for a, a number of years, and Michael can probably tell me exactly when when we started to do that work. But it 1991, was, uh, 1991, um, and it's it's a it's a unique focus area within um, the NGO community in Minnesota. It's not uh, codes haven't traditionally been a, a subject area that get a lot of attention from uh, energy and climate advocates, but it is potentially a very powerful and impactful tool, um, and you know, in, does does affect and draw the interest of a lot of different stakeholders. Um, the code is basically, uh, 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 describes what the you know, minimum sort of standards are for every building that you build in the state of Minnesota. And so anybody who has an interest in buildings, um, which is like basically all people, um, is a stakeholder when we're talking about um, uh, uh, talking about building codes. So it's very, uh, in addition to being technically complex, it's very politically complex. Um, and uh, we have done a lot, uh, Fresh Energy has done a lot of work over the years through the administrative process, um, providing public comments and technical analysis on proposed updates to the code. Um, that work has been going on uh, since not apparently since 1991 um, and, and will continue into the future. Um, but also it's been a focus of interest at the legislature and with policymakers. And uh, uh, five or six years ago, there was a, uh, kind of a new initiative that was really spearheaded initially by a group of cities um, that were interested in or had adopted uh, climate climate action plans and climate goals and found themselves a little limited um, by in terms of what they could do within their kind of authority um, in the building sector. Um, and so started asking questions and looking at different models for how we might approach the code in a different way that would allow uh, cities to move faster or to make sure that their climate goals were were, were met. Um, where we actually landed this year is a new, uh, uh, and this, this policy, there's been, I think, six different versions of this bill that have been written over each of the last six legislative sessions, um, but six times the charm. Um, the uh, policy that uh, was passed this year um, sets a new goal of 80% efficiency or uh, energy savings relative to a 2004 baseline by the year 2036. So that's a that's a mouthful. It's like you're like what? Where do those numbers come from? But that what that basically 
what that's basically saying is we're going to get about as much as you can uh, energy savings as you can get through traditional energy efficiency measures. And we're going to do that by the year 2036 for all new commercial buildings. Um, that's actually pretty, that's a pretty robust policy. Um, and uh, we have a lot of work to do in the building sector. Um, we have, I, I forget the exact number. There's a, there's a statistic out there. Maybe somebody even in the, in the audience knows it, that um, at a very high percentage of the buildings that are going to exist in the state of Minnesota in the year 2050, when we have to be at zero emissions, um, have already been built. Um, that's, this policy doesn't affect that. We have a lot of work to do to get our existing building stock um, to be uh, to be carbon neutral. Um, but uh, the first step in the road to that solution is to stop making the problem worse. And we've finally put Minnesota on a trajectory to do exactly that. And it's for all commercial, all new commercial buildings uh, in the state of Minnesota. So it's very exciting, uh, very exciting win that we, uh, a number of us at Fresh Energy and and uh, uh, elsewhere in the climate community have been working on for a number of years now. Awesome, thank you. That was quite the building's pep talk. I bet you have a few converts in the audience. Uh, okay, so now I know that Fresh Energy is a member of the Frontline Communities Coalition that successfully advanced the Frontline Communities Protection Act. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so kind of pivoting to more industrial buildings. Um, so the way that um, permitting happens for individual point source facilities is what they're called is um that facility has to meet a certain benchmark and level of pollution they can't go over a certain emissions level for that one single facility but it's kind of measured within the bounds of that one single polluting source so there gets to be an issue if that polluting source is directly next to another one which is directly next to another one and they're kind of all concentrated in a particular area there aren't very good protections for the cumulative impacts of that constant those concentrated buildings or you know sources of air or water pollution so the frontline communities protection act um, was being supported by the frontline communities coalition which was led by copal and the minnesota environmental justice table they've been working on it for several years um, so there's a new law on the books that protects um, communities that are overburdened by existing pollution by saying that, okay, let's not look at, you know, the individual pollution sources, let's look at the total um, pollution and, and how much an additional facility would be adding to that. So that's now going to be required in uh, permitting projects um, within the seven county metro area, uh, the cities of Rochester and Duluth, and tribal nations will also have the opportunity to opt in to that. Uh, policy. So it's super exciting. Um, it's a it's a nation leading policy. Uh, Representative Fooley and Senator Bobby Joe Champion were authors on that. And I uh, just want to shout out also Roxanne O'Brien, um, who's been working on the north side on this policy for a long time, too. And Janice Watts was our policy lead internally on this. So it's a really big win. Um, really exciting to see exciting to see it in a really good equity policy. Thank you, Anna. Um, so Justin, the buy clean, buy 
Fair Minnesota Act, I know was one that you were especially excited about from the very beginning. Can you tell the group what it entails? Sure. Well, so the BiClean is modeled off of a policy that was first adopted in um, a state on the West Coast that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name specifically. Um, uh, that uh, what it basically uh, what it basically is is it's a uh, a procurement policy. It it says when we procure the state procures raw raw materials uh, and it names certain um, sectors specifically or certain products specifically like like uh, structural steel, for example, um, that it's gonna uh, do so based on an emissions profile analysis. So instead of just buy the cheapest thing on the market, we're actually gonna look at like what the carbon intensity of the product is uh, and how it's being sourced. Um, and that does a couple of different things. Um, one, it means that when we do especially large public, you know, large public works projects, you know, big capital projects, um, we can do those in, in a way that um, hopefully has less emissions impact. But also, um, when you do that, one of the major drivers of emissions from some of these products is the transportation costs. Um, and so in effect, what you're when you start looking more seriously or considering more seriously the emissions impact, um, that's a kind of a thumb on the scale for local sourcing of uh, these raw materials. Uh, and that, in addition to having climate benefits, also has local economic development uh, and, and job creation benefits, which is which is a win-win um, and, uh, and one of the features of that policy. And I um, have to give just an enormous amount of credit to our friends at the Blue Green Alliance for leading on this. Um, they were uh, instrumental in um, uh, this policy being adopted uh, in in um, that state that shall not be named uh, a number of years ago, and have been advancing similar policies around the country. And um, we're very very excited to see Minnesota uh, 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 join the party. Thanks, Michael. It looked like you wanted you were thinking about chiming in on this one. Well, I'm just. I'm really delighted uh, to see uh, Justin highlight this again of dozens of wonderful things that happened. This was one where the labor movement in Minnesota and the environmental movement in Minnesota put their shoulders together, you know, and not to call out a historic partisan figure, but Paul Wellstone was the one who originally had the vision of blue and green together. Why be divided over the issues that separate us? Let's find the issues that unite us. This is the politics of, uh, of, uh, making a difference. And um, uh, Blue Green Alliance has been just a fabulous partner to Fresh Energy for all these many years. And uh, to see their work uh, become law is something I'm, I'm very, very, very proud to see. Really is, I think, one of the um, maybe underappreciated stories of the session was just, you know, as we go through this list, every single one of these uh, policies that we've talked about so far was a collaboration between um, environmental and climate groups and and our friends in labor. Um, and I, you know, I I think it it speaks, the results speak for themselves when we find ways to work together and, and build these strategic partnerships and look for common interests. Um, we can get we can get an awful lot done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, um, another hot topic in Minnesota is fertilizer because nitrogen fertilizer production is enormously carbon intensive and it's produced primarily using fossil gas. 
Justin, can you talk a little bit about Fresh Energy's green fertilizer work at the Capitol this year? And I think, Michael, you'll you'll probably want to be chiming in here, too. Michael's even more, much more of an expert than I am, but you know, this, this is really an emerging area uh, of interest for fresh energy. Um, we actually just launched a new program uh, within the past year, focusing on decarbonization and in the industrial and agriculture sectors um, headed by uh, Craig McDonald, formerly uh, assistant commissioner at the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. Um, and so this is one of, I think, a number of different uh, emerging strategies, strategies that we see having a lot of potential um, to uh, drive down emissions and um, you know, spur um, investment and economic development in especially in rural communities. Um, fertilizer is a really interesting kind of uh, uh, focus area. Um, conventional fertilizer production, uh, well, a lot of it is sourced uh, globally. It's not even produced in the United States. Um, and most of the fertilizer production that does happen here uh, in the US uh, is largely taking place kind of in, in the Gulf Coast region. Um, and it's very petroleum heavy uh, industry and process. Um, what uh, uh, green fertilizer is, is basically fertilizer that's generated with renewable energy rather than petroleum. And there's some really cutting edge national nation leading research happening at the University of Minnesota Morris, uh, go Cougars, uh, right here uh, in the good old state of Minnesota. Um, and a gentleman named Michael Reese, um, who's a nationally recognized uh, thought leader on these subjects, um, that uh, is at the cusp of being able to um, actually start to deploy um, some of these new uh, fertilizer production technologies um, to produce fertilizer with uh, little or no uh, emissions, uh, carbon emissions uh, impact. Um, and that's that's a really big deal. The, the um, egg sector, agriculture sector is one that we're really in the early stages of wrapping our heads around how to how to actually decarbonize at scale and having um, emerging technologies like this uh, uh, is an absolute absolutely necessary in order to uh, be able to get where we need to go by mid-century, which is um, no emissions from these sectors. So um, it's a it's a really cool opportunity and like you know. Maybe in addition to doing good things for the planet, we're going to like have a new multi-billion dollar industry headquartered here uh, in the upper Midwest instead of uh, in, in oil states. It's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And if our listeners are super interested in this part of the conversation, uh, stay tuned. I will be hosting a podcast in the next few weeks with both Craig McDonald and Mike Reese. Um, so we'll be really digging into that. But Michael, do you have anything you want to yeah, add? I just, I just want to just highlight the power of this idea. That if, if we're important, I mean, fertilizer is an important part of our economy. And of course, we're fully committed to all our water quality and environmental quality allies who want to use you know fertilizer sparingly and make sure that it doesn't contaminate our waters. But you know, everybody, every practical person knows we need fertilizer. So let's make fertilizer in rural Minnesota from wind power not import fertilizer from the Gulf Coast produced by natural gas and fossil fuels. This is uh, the ultimate uh, green economy, uh, sustainability, uh, industrial decarbonization strategy. And I believe that Fresh Energy is, is the leading nonprofit in the world on this. And someone proved me wrong that someone's farther ahead than we, but uh, Fresh Energy has a, a senior level executive from the Walls administration joined our team to lead this effort. And it, 
and I should just add what actually got passed at the legislature this year, I forgot to mention that, uh, was uh, funding for basically enough funding for one pilot scale project. Um, so we're, it's very much like we're in the early stages of this, uh, of this effort, but um, uh, the legislature has stepped up with some um, resources that uh, will get put to immediate use. Wonderful. Okay, now I think we should pivot to transportation. Uh, Anna, with transportation emissions now the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, um, Fresh Energy advocated for investment in electric vehicle infrastructure and incentives. Uh, and there were some other things too. Anna, can you kick us off maybe by talking about the Metro sales tax? Yes, I would be delighted to. Um, so the legislature passed a metro sales tax for the seven county metro area. It'll be 0.75 cents on the dollar and five, six of that will be dedicated exclusively to transit. Um, this is a huge win for transit, which just has not been uh, able to get enough funding and was kind of um, at a moment where it was kind of about to fall off a cliff where we absolutely needed major investment in transit to at, at least keep it, maintain the status quo. Um, but this Metro sales tax will be a huge um, ongoing investment in critical um, transit funding ongoing. Uh, I want to give a huge shout out to Move Minnesota and Sierra Club who did a phenomenal job, uh, even in the Metro area, raising revenue and raising Taxes is taxes is a is a difficult vote, um, and it's it's super exciting to see this cross the finish line, and we're gonna see and feel the impacts of this very soon, um, and it's gonna feel really good. It's gonna we're gonna be really proud of uh, our metro area and statewide uh, transportation infrastructure. So it's very exciting to see. There's also a a, a fifty cent delivery fee on certain product. Uh, certain orders that get delivered to your house uh, has to be starts at $100 or more and doesn't apply to like clothing and food and things that don't have the sales tax. So that's an additional um, funding source as well. So I have to chime, chime in here too again. Uh, I just want to call, uh, call out our elders. Uh, this, this has been something we've been seeking for 20 years in the clean energy and climate movement. Uh, mentioned the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, Jim Urkel, and before there was Move Minnesota, there was Transit for Livable Communities, Barb Thoman, Dave Van Haddam, and Fresh Energy's own uh, Shantara Hardy and Ethan Foley. Uh, all those people worked for years and years and years to realize this dream. And uh, special shout out to uh, State Representative Frank Hornstein, the chair of the Transportation Committee, and State Senator Scott Dibble. Uh, it's just like, to, 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 the, to the clean electricity world, getting the 100% bill was like the main thing. To the transportation world, getting a metro-wide sales tax dedicated to transportation um, equity and justice and inclusion. You know, people don't have to have cars to get around if they have good transit. There's nothing more equitable, more just, more climate-friendly than a metro-wide sales tax to support public transportation. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, I also realized I, sh I should shout out the 100% campaign too, and there were several others who worked on it. But after the 100% bill passed, uh, the 100% campaign did some very quick um, assessment and pivoting and, and put their shoulder into the transportation bill. So they did an awesome job 
um, advocating as well. Uh, so in addition, oh, Justin, chime in. Uh, as long as we're doing shout outs on the um, once in a generation transit funding victory, I uh, uh, want to also just recognize my good friends at the Sierra Club, uh, Peter Wiginius, Joshua Hodak, Margaret Levin uh, in particular, um, and Sam, Sam Rockwell uh, and his team at Move Minnesota uh, just provided exemplary leadership and um, wow, what, what, what an accomplishment. Absolutely. Really amazing. That's the problem when you start naming people. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, so in addition to uh, historic transit funding, there's also a lot of funding for electric electrification of vehicles uh, in a few different buckets. So there's $13 million invested in the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, which is a federal, a federal fund program that will establish a fast charging EV network across the state. Um, there's also a, a, an EV bill that has been introduced in the past and, and made it across the finish line this year. It provides EV rebates to, for the purchase of new and used electric vehicles. So it's a $2,500 uh, rebate for new EVs. And the, those EVs have to be $55,000 or less suggested retail price. Um, and uh, let's see, $600 for the um, used EV. So excellent. And those rebates will be available right at the point of sale. So it'll reduce the purchase price. So you don't have to, I always have a hard time with that, you know, fill out a form and drop it in the mail to make sure you get your money back. Uh, so there are also dealership grants that were established to make sure dealers are equipped uh, for train, you know, they're trained and understand electric vehicles. Um, they can use the grants also to purchase um, charging infrastructure on their on their dealership sites. And uh, also, yeah, $13 million in electric school buses, which is one of my favorite things. Um, everyone loves an electric school bus. Uh, our regular diesel buses are just so gross and are most vulnerable uh, among us children who have developing hearts and lungs, uh, breathing in diesel fumes is uh, just a huge public health issue. So um, investing in public school buses is a huge win and I'm really excited to see that roll out. Uh, also want to shout out um, MK Anderson and Craig McDonald on our staff who are um, leading in the transportation space for us. Transportation was a big one. So any, Justin or Michael, any closing, closing thoughts on transportation before we move on to solar? All right, we're going to solar. Uh, so much, there was so much solar. Uh, Justin, I do not, I'm not giving you an easy task right now when I ask you to give us a rundown of all the cool things that happened for solar this year. Good luck. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm not possibly going to be able to name, name it all, but um, you know, one of the uh, coming into the sessions session, one of the subject areas that we knew we were going to want to dig into was um, something called interconnection. Um, so interconnection is the process by which um, electricity generating technology like like solar PV um, connects to the grid and it determines how much new grid infrastructure is required in order to connect a project. Um, it's a very technical process. It can be very time consuming and it has uh, a lot of influence over the speed and pace at which you can actually build out um, our clean electricity system. Um, this has in recent years become a particular problem on XL Energy system. Um, just the 
amount of small distribution level solar um, that's being built or that is uh, proposed to be built um, has started to kind of it, in some ways, it's become a victim of its own success. Um, it's coming up the works a little bit. And in many cases, you're seeing uh, homeowners and small commercial uh, folks um, who want to install solar on their building, homes or buildings who are either A, um, being forced to wait in line for a very, very long period of time, or B, uh, being assessed very significant uh, charges in order to pay for uh, grid upgrades, or C, both A and B, um, and that uh, that's a that's become a barrier to um, you know especially smaller uh, rooftop projects getting built, um, uh, and it's not happening everywhere. It's happening kind of specifically on Excel system and in, in kind of only in certain areas. Um, so we we dug in pretty hard on that uh, problem this year, and um, the final uh, energy kind of budget bill uh, included a little over ten million dollars to make. Uh, infrastructure investments in the specific areas of Xcel Energy's grid that are the most, um, the, the phrase our, our, our staff uses is capacity constrained. Um, so the, uh, it doesn't solve the entire problem, it's not intended to, but um, just a little bit of money to jumpstart uh, some, some projects in those areas that are just the most affected by uh, this problem. Um, beyond that, there is like a, a, just a significant amount of new resources uh, being put into especially the solar on schools program. Um, that was a, a solar on schools is a bipartisan uh, program that passed a couple of years ago and it's been wildly successful around the state. Uh, it turns out um, schools, which tend to be older buildings, tend to have flat roofs and tend to be um, major sort of centers and hubs of community uh, interest and activity are. Uh, like the best places to put solar panels. Um, and the demand for this program has dramatically outpaced uh, the resources that have been made available today. So there's a, a significant amount of new uh, uh, new money being put into set aside for to support um, solar on, uh, uh, on schools. And for the first time this year, uh, solar on other public buildings. So especially uh, local governments that want to reduce their energy costs by installing building uh, solar on their buildings will have some uh, a new state program to help support them uh, in doing so. Uh, community solar uh, is uh, was the subject of, of some conversation this year. Um, Fresh Energy worked really, really hard uh, a decade ago along with uh, Xcel Energy and uh, the now speaker of the Minnesota House to create the community solar program. Um, it's been wildly successful over its first decade of existence. I believe it is factually correct to say that most of the solar that currently exists in the state of Minnesota is, uh, is directly as a result of that program. Um, but moving forward, I think we, we anticipated this year uh, and then actually did have a fairly robust conversation about you know, what, what should the next 10 years of that program look like? And how do we continue to uh, advance, uh, especially smaller scale um, solar projects in a way that uh, reduces costs and helps to facilitate longer term uh, kind of holistic planning. Um, and the legislature did pass a fairly significant um, set of reforms to the program. Uh, we continue to have some concerns around the overall cost of community solar uh, on the system and, and alongside other um, uh, other renewables and, and including other other types of solar, um, but there were some uh, significant uh, changes that were made that we think are for the better, um, and uh, look forward to continuing to work on on uh, uh, 
community solar and other solar project build out uh, in the um, months and years to come. One uh, amplification of that is that uh, uh, a new a new category of uh, distribution level solar, namely uh, ground mounted solar farms that are smaller than you know say fifty or seventy acres, that would be uh, competitively procured uh, on a on a market basis by Excel and Minnesota Power and Ottertail Power. That was agreed to, and we think these uh, these solar farms, if you will, that are not on the transmission system, but on the distribution system are gonna be incredibly uh, important as we wait and wait and wait to build the transmission we need for larger solar farms. So we're looking forward to a, really an explosive new industry of a competitively priced market-based uh, uh, community scale uh, solar farms on, on Minnesota's distribution system. And we had the support from um, both the House and the Senate and the governor and all three investor-owned utilities to get started in that direction. I, I uh, said there was a lot about solar. Oh, you have more, Justin. Oh, and just to answer one of the questions I saw pop up in the chat, uh, the uh, contiguous county rule uh, will no longer exist uh, beginning in 2024. Oh, I, I love it, answering a question already. Uh, folks, Please remember to put your questions in the Q&A. I will do my best to look at the chat when we go through the questions at the end, but if they're in the Q&A, I will definitely see them. But in the interest of time, let's keep rolling on. Uh, Anna, a highlight of this year was the Minnesota Climate Innovation Finance Authority, uh, also known as Green Bank. Anna, can you tackle explaining how the finance authority builds on the great work already being done in the clean energy and conservation space? Yeah, thanks, Joe. So the Climate Innovation Finance Authority is an exciting um, new finance tool that'll provide financial and technical assistance that'll make more clean energy projects possible. So some clean energy projects don't necessarily have a huge return on investment or, you know, communities who have historically had less access to capital still have less access to capital. Um, but there's a lot of projects that are worth doing that are just hard to get funded. So um, this will be a new publicly accountable financing authority. Um, and the huge benefit of this is that it'll help leverage um, federal dollars or yeah, it'll leverage federal dollars. Um, so it'll multi it'll have a kind of a multiplying factor for the investment that Minnesota is making. So super exciting. Um, there's $20 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. So uh, the $45 million investment from the state this year will help uh, Minnesota have access to that level of funding. So super exciting. Representative Greenman and Senator Zhang did a great job leading on this one. Thank you. So, uh, can I yeah. chime in here on uh, the Green Bank? Uh, uh, want to acknowledge... Uh, uh, former state representative Jeremy Kalin, who's on the call, has worked on this a long time with a lot of other folks. But one of the key things to know about this, this particular new policy is it creates a new state finance authority. And remember those three words, state finance authority. Uh, it it uh, is like the Minnesota Housing Finance Agency or the Rural Development Authority or, or, or the St. Paul Port Authority. It's a state entity that uh, has finance capability. And uh, 
just to give you a little teaser, uh, it, it was about the middle of the session that the Department of Commerce and the governor's office realized that creating a green bank and a new state finance authority, those three magic words, state finance authority, allows the state of Minnesota to borrow money from the United States Department of Energy uh, through the loan program office uh, for all the different things we might want to do, whether it's school buses or fast chargers or uh, rooftop solar on 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 schools or uh, green fertilizer. The federal treasury is here to help if we have a state finance authority with skin in the game. Great skin in the game, indeed. Okay, so those were just a few, actually more than a few, but quite a few of the big highlights for fresh energy that we wanted to sit down and unpack for folks today. So if these accomplishments show us anything, it's that the work is truly just beginning. I feel like through the whole conversation, we've been talking about like this happened and now it means all these other things can happen. So Justin, can you talk about how everything we talked about increase the monumental importance of continuing to advocate for and invest in clean energy and climate policies in Minnesota? Well, it's not just advocating for policies, right? We 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 passed a lot of good policy this year, and we passed a lot of good programs this year, and now um, now it's really about executing on it. Um, this there, you know, there's no guarantee that we're ever. I shouldn't say ever. You know, breakthrough years like this don't happen every year. That's why they're called breakthrough years. And um, we have to make sure that this historic opportunity is not squandered, and that means. Uh, really, really digging in and making sure that all of these new policies and programs are implemented um, quickly and correctly um, and in ways that are sustainable um, and allow uh, and continue to build uh, and position Minnesota to build for even more ambitious and harder conversations that we're going to have uh, in, in future years. Um, and so that means, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on our state agencies um, who are now, you know, that the legislature did its job. Um, and now it's really going to be up to the folks who, you know, at the Minnesota Department of Commerce, Minnesota Public Utilities Commission, um, our local governments who have a significant role in a number of these initiatives um, to really step up and make sure that uh, they're, they're, they're being thoughtful and careful um, in implementing all of these programs in ways that are going to be um, successful both in terms of outcomes and also in terms of public perception um, so that we can come back in a year or two or three and ask for more because we're not, this isn't enough um, as great as this year is to, to solve the climate crisis. We're not, we haven't accomplished net zero economy wide by mid-century yet, not even close. Um, and so this is the year where we're, this is the year that sets up that, this isn't the end game. This is like what sets up the end game. And, um, you know, that's, I think we're, we're starting to think about that a lot at Fresh Energy in terms of what is that going to mean for our work, um, which is historically very focused on the legislature um, and on regulatory decision making. Um, maybe we need to start spending more time thinking about um, how do we, how do we support local governments? How do we support, uh, how do we, uh, you know, leverage our, uh, our staff expertise as, um, a, you know, thought partner and leadership and, and, and support for uh, our state agencies that are going to be implementing all of these complex programs. So um, I, I know there's a number of folks on from other uh, other nonprofits and from other folks that have 
skin in the game um, on uh, many of these uh, efforts. And I, I just would encourage all of us to think really hard. I mean, let's you know take a couple of days here and like recover. Uh, and then um, for those of us who are uh, fortunate enough to be paid to do this work, um, we really need to now start thinking about how do we uh, how do we win the win. Uh, and make sure that these uh, are successful programs long-term. All right, so before we hop into the Q&A, I do see a lot of questions. I want to, I might regret this, we're coming up on time, but I think it's already clear we're going to go a little long. It's good, we're at the end of the day. Uh, I want to open things up to the three of you. You're going to let me have a word in there before you go (laughs) question and answer. Well, you do get a word. We're going to do closing thoughts and you get the final closing thought. Oh, I thought I was going to do that right now. Do you want to talk about implementation right now? Well, I, I just do want to acknowledge that, you know, for 30 years, we've been focusing on writing the rules of the game. And now we have all these new rules and the rules are written. And now we have to implement the rules. We have to think about how does, you know, what does fresh energy want to be when we grow up? Uh, implementation, implementation, implementation. Uh, you know, my, one of my heroes in the federal government is Jigger Shah, and he, his, his slogan is uh, deploy, 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 deploy. We have the solutions that we need. We just have to get steel in the ground. We have to, we have to, we have to scale these things up at the speed and scale of the climate crisis. And um, I think every single not-for-profit group, every single labor union, every single state agency has to ask uh, not only what new policies do we need, but how do we effectively implement the policies we now have? So, yeah, here, here. Well, I hope you have another closing thought because you're going to have an opportunity. Actually. Okay, good. I, I, I do actually. I do okay. have one more comment. Well, let's let's go, Anna, and then Justin, and then Michael. You can have like the closing closing thought before the, All right, the Q and A. Okay. All right, Anna, take it away. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I, I really appreciate this conversation and. Um, thanks everyone for being here. I think one of the biggest things I learned kind of in a felt like in an instant this year, it really kind of crystallized for me on November, whatever, mid-November, um, is that uh, and then also kind of continuously crystallized over the course of the session is that all of the work that we've done leading up to this point was absolutely critical. So passing the 100 percent bill off the floor two times over the last two bienniums, even though we knew that uh, it was not gonna get signed into law, that the the Senate was very, very unlikely to pass it. Um, That work work was not for naught. And in in fact, it was totally critical to um, all of the successes we had today. So um, I just, it it was a huge lesson in just like grinding and continuing to grind and continuing to build power and beat the drum, even if, it doesn't lead immediately to wins or the outcomes we're hoping for is that it's it you got to be ready for the opportunity when it comes along and um if you haven't done the work and been continuously building power then you're not going to be ready for it so um it was a big moment in realizing that even the partial wins over the last several years were actually very clear steps along the way that got us to this point Thank you, Anna. And um, I really don't have a whole lot to add except to underscore the point Anna just made and maybe add a couple of other shout outs. Um, 
you know, it really is, uh, this year really is testament to the power of playing the long game. Um, uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning, there's folks on the, on the, uh, well, I mean, in this conversation on the, on the panel, but also in the audience who were working on some of these initiatives for, uh, in some cases, decades, plural. Um, and that uh, most, most sessions end with disappointment, not what we're feeling right now. And um, it's just so absolutely important that we have and continue to have and, and foster and nurture a community of advocates that is um, broad and skilled and dedicated um, to moving um, all, of, all of these initiatives forward, even when the political environment is challenging. And I, if there are, I don't know if there are um, folks on the, uh, in the audience who um, are from the philanthropic community or uh, folks who, who provide resources to either Fresh Energy or other organizations. I think this, this breakthrough moment is not the result of some um, like influx of resources from 2023. It's the culmination of many, many years of support um, from a, a wide array of institutions and individuals. And um, I don't think you can, there's no better example of why sometimes you, you do need to um, play the long game and make investments when you don't see the opportunity for immediate term wins, because that's how you get to opportunities like what we had in 2023. We had all of the tools and all of the pieces in place as a, as a community and as a state to be able to strike when the opportunity presented itself. Um, and that to me is like, is the big takeaway from this year. Thank you, Justin. Michael, do you have some closing thoughts before we do the Q&A? So more a point, a point of personal privilege. I just might say that uh, tomorrow is actually my last day at Fresh Energy. And uh, if you wrote a script that the governor was going to sign this bill tomorrow morning, and that would be my last day on the job, the editor would tell you that's way too corny and you have to rewrite it before they film it, because that's just no, not believable. Nobody would believe that. But uh, just... Uh, you know, five years before I started working at Fresh Energy, I was a volunteer at Fresh Energy. So I, I've literally been employed here for almost 28 years and five years more. That's a third of a century that I've been involved with this group. And I, I like to, the reason I chose this room to have this, the photograph behind me is uh, the first uh, wind farm in Minnesota uh, put out on the Buffalo Ridge in 1997. And it you know, was the result of advocacy that we started doing in 1990 and a, a legislative victory we won in 1994. And I always surprise people when I say that when this wind farm was built, there literally were no wind farms in North America, except for the wind farms that were built in California in the, in the mid seventies that are, were all obsolete out of date technology. So this is the first modern wind farm between California and Denmark. We basically were copying the Danes who had a grassroots movement to build wind energy in Denmark. And to imagine that, you know, when we were first convening in 1990 and saying, wow, if maybe we could get a thousand megawatts of uh, clean energy within a decade. That was our dream from 1990 to 2000. And now we basically have all the electricity is gonna be carbon free. And we now have a commitment uh, from our president of the United States that the entire American economy will be carbon free and that we'll get halfway there yet this decade. That's the, that's the president's commitment on the world stage is that we're gonna get halfway there this, uh, this decade. And so when, when he said we can get halfway to zero this decade, the climate scientists said, wow, that's exactly the right answer. That's exactly precise, correct science. And then all the advocates were like, holy, 
crap. That's, that's a lot of stuff we got to get done pretty fast. And I just say that I, I leave this job with absolute uh, contentment and pride and happiness that, that I, I really believe in my heart that we are going to be a uh, zero car carbon economy by the middle of the century uh, nationwide. And I believe Minnesota is going to help lead the way. And I believe we're going to get halfway there in the next seven years. We'll be, well, our, our economy will have half the carbon that it had in 2005 by 2030 is my prediction. And uh, I just want to tell you that the organization is in incredibly capable hands. The board has selected uh, Dr. Brenda Caselius, who is a remarkable leader of incredible integrity and vision and warmth, who is going to take this organization to the next level. And um, I have nothing but uh, admiration for her and for uh, our incredible staff, all our allies and partners and organizations and philanthropy friends and individual donors and uh, the many, many, many policymakers and, and retired and recovering policymakers who might be on this call who um, made this moment in history possible. It's a dramatic, dramatic turn of events. And Peter Wagenius uh, had a beautiful little tweet the other day where he was testifying in the committee. And he said he, he's never ever been confident that we could fix our climate until now. And I completely agree with Peter that I am completely confident that we are going to fix this challenge. And rather than go over the waterfall and crash at the bottom, I believe that we'll have a prosperous, equitable, carbon-free future that uh, benefits all. So I'm incredibly proud and, and happy to have been able to do this job these past 27 years. Thank you, Michael. Wonderful closing thoughts. Um, okay, so we have a little bit of, well, we don't have a little bit of time, but if you three are willing to stay on, we can dedicate a little bit of time for some additional Q and A. I do want to share my screen because I have a tiny bit of housekeeping to do because the comms professional in me says, I have to tell you about these things. So first I do want to remind everyone that you can support fresh energies work by making a donation today, the staff time and resources that were dedicated to this session would not have been possible without fresh energies donors, large and small. And then next, uh, if you felt inspired by Michael's speech, you should come to our party. Uh, we're having a party on June 8th. We're calling 100% fresh. And we will be celebrating all things fresh energy, including Michael and Brenda Caselius will be there as well, officially the uh, executive director of fresh energy. There will be a band, there's live music, food, beverages, all of it. So capacity is limited and tickets are, I think, getting a little, little tight. So um, do reserve your ticket using that URL or that QR code. Oh, and fun fact, this person here, we asked the artist to model him after Michael. I don't know if you can see the person in the E, but that that's all Michael being part of the clean energy revolution. Okay, let's do questions. Um, I've got a couple of pre-submitted questions to go through, and I'm going to pull up our Q&A here as well. Um, yeah, let's, uh, how about Lee? Lee says, when will the new rebates in the transportation bill go into effect? Is there an easy and fast answer for this one? Maybe no. 
I actually don't know off the top of my head when the effective date of the, I assume that's referring to the electric vehicle and uh, rebates. And I don't know when the effective date is, I'll be honest. Okay. I mean, perhaps somebody in the audience does. So keep an eye on the chat. Uh, all right. Um, what about, uh, let's see. Joe, yeah. Joe, sorry, just to chime in. I think yeah. I had seen another question maybe that someone had asked initially. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, just another thing related to the EV rebates. So there's currently $15 million in the fund. Um, 5 million is from the general fund. So that is widely available to the state. Um, but 10 million, there's a little over 10 million that's coming from the renewable development account. So that's specifically for uh, folks in XL Energy territory. And right now it's 15 million available until 2027. I have a feeling that it'll dry up before then. Um, but that is uh, currently what's available. And it, unlike the federal tax credits, there aren't um, sort of limitations on like where the battery is sourced and if that vehicle is eligible or not. It's just uh, based on the price of the vehicle and there's some income limits. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so this question is from Gary. Uh, even with political collaboration, what were the biggest practical challenges in getting this all passed when the legislature had so many big topics to deal with? Justin? I'll, I'll take a first stab at that, and I'm curious to hear um, my colleagues, too. Um, I mean, honest honest to God, just keeping up with it all. Um, the, I mean, the question in some ways answers itself. Uh, the um, the just sheer amount of what the legislature, not just on energy and climate, but across the board, took on this year, um, really stretched uh, the legislators and especially the legislative staff um, to the absolute limit. Um, and that um, that was challenging, um, just in terms of like the mechanics of the session and making sure that you know folks were having the opportunity, you know, at the experts were having an opportunity to revise bill language and make sure that the right kind of technical analysis was being done on policies that were being passed. Um, it was a lot. Um, and uh, there's a number of folks who I'm not going to call out by name. I, they know who they are, hopefully, that I hope are getting um, a lot of rest this summer. Um, because uh, those folks, for those of you that don't um, maybe spend a lot of time at the legislature, don't uh, work at the legislature in a professional capacity. Um, the non, especially non, all of the staff, but especially the nonpartisan staff um, who work at the legislature and do most of the bill drafting are absolute unsung heroes uh, of within our state government. And um, those folks had more pressure on them in 2023 than I think they've ever experienced. Um, and so just that sheer... How, how you actually just mechanically do the volume of stuff that they did was a, a major challenge. Amazing accomplishment. Um, thanks a couple, thanks yeah, for that yeah. question. Thanks, Dad, for that question. I'll also add, um, you know, the, <laughs> the House and Senate are two different, you know, they've got, they're two different caucuses. Um, they, they have different cultures. And so they didn't pass identical bills. So there was, at the end of the day, there was, um, negotiations that had to happen. And there were some, I think, tricky, difficult moments um, and some serious compromise that had to happen. The daylight between them uh, was obviously much different than when it was in divided government, but, um, you know, there were still some, some kind of hard choices to make. 
All right. We had a few pre-submitted questions about heat pumps. And I think Jeff sums it up the best. Uh, Jeff asks, how do heat pumps fit in? So that's a pretty broad question, but I know there was some cool heat pump stuff that happened. Well, I, I'll just wait in and say heat pumps are, are of course, magic. Uh, I can't explain how they work, but I know that if you put in one unit of electricity, you can get three or four uh, units of heat. If you have a ground source heat pump, you might get five or six units of heat. That's objectively magic. So we're all going to heat with heat pumps and we're going to heat our hot water with heat pumps because we're going to heat uh, with renewable electricity, not with fossil gas. So uh, if I start a new nonprofit, maybe I'll call it Heat Pump Nation. So everybody's going to have heat pumps. And um, the legislature uh, incentivized uh, heat pumps. And um, our friends over at the Minnesota Center for Energy and Environment are one of the world's foremost research institutes on heat pumps. And now they're uh, positioning themselves to be one of the world's foremost institution in organizing uh, labor and small business and marketing to get heat pumps everywhere. So heat pumps are cool. Get a heat pump. All right. Anna? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> now you're convinced. And good thing. There's a $13 million worth of heat pump rebates total in the bill. And in addition, there's a workforce training program because one of the sort of pinch points limiting factors right now is there aren't that many people who know how to install heat pumps and who will kind of try to talk you out of getting a heat pump and will instead try to convince you to get a, a gas boiler. So um, that, that'll be a huge uh, investment that'll help with adoption. All right, well, I know that firsthand. Um, well, I guess since we're talking about heat pumps, I've got a few questions about the IRA. And I know this isn't an IRA webinar, which IRA means the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed last year's. Um, so people are asking, when will the implementation and rebates uh, within the IRA be available to families? And I did just double check the Commerce website, uh, Minnesota Department of Commerce, and it looks like they're still targeting rollout in December of 2023. Um, it is a good resource. I'm actually going to drop this page in the chat. Um, so if people are interested in uh, access to rebates um, through the IRA and when those will happen in Minnesota, I would say go, go to the commerce page and, and don't get out over your skis quite yet. Um, if you do want a rebate, because this is a 10 year program and they're building it um, for the state. Uh, Can okay. I say something about IRA? Yeah, please, Michael. Uh, you know, you, you saw a hundred times that there was like $370 billion for climate solutions in the IRA, but that is objectively not true. That was the Congressional Budget Office that they had to come up with a number guessing how much there would be spent on it. But all these technologies are on sale 30% off for 10 years, and there's no cap on how much the federal treasury will put into these tax credits. So the amount of money that Minnesota can get to decarbonize from the Inflation Reduction Act, the number is specifically unlimited. We have unlimited access to the federal treasury for heat pumps, solar farms, wind farms, electric cars, electric buses, modular nuclear reactors, carbon capture with a gas plant, whatever technology turns your crank, the federal government is providing 30% off for the next 10 years and the amount of money that Minnesota could get is infinite. 
Well, I think I have um, a final question for us because I know we are over time and I am, uh, I know you guys want to be done with your days most likely after that very long, very thrilling legislative session. So Hillary has actually, I think, a really fabulous closing question for us. Um, so Hillary asks, how can Minnesota ensure that its transition to clean energy is equitable and inclusive? I think you all could answer this and you're welcome to, but who, who would like to start? Well, I'm just going to start by saying that this is the the central question of our era, that if, if there's two human problems that are universal, it's the question of uh, climate and the question of racial and economic justice. And we can't decarbonize the world and have our inequality get worse. We have to have, we have to decarbonize the world and have our inequality get better. So, you know, Fresh Energy has uh, three full-time people who think about this all day, every day, but they don't just sit over in their department. They think about every aspect of everything we work on and every public position we take to put it through the lens of, is this inclusive? Are the right people at the table? Is this making uh, the inequality problem better or worse? Um, we deeply care about having uh, a clean energy revolution that's strong enough to lift everybody up uh, so nobody gets left behind. Yeah, well put. I, I would add to, I, I think that's well said, Michael, and I would just, I would add that um, having equitable outcomes doesn't happen inevitably. It requires like an intentional set of decisions when policy is being made in the first place, which means you need people in the room making the policy that um, understand and will prioritize those things. Um, and um, I, I, we're not all the way there yet. I think we did a better, when I say we, I mean like the state as a whole, I think did a better job of that in 2023 than we historically have, but there's a long way to go. Um, and I think including at organizations like Fresh Energy, um, we have to continue to um, really uh, lean into uh, our commitments in this, in this area because they're not, um, there are a lot of institutional and historical barriers to, um, to progress and things are the way they are because of conscious decisions that um, previous generations have made. And if we want different outcomes, we have to consciously make different decisions. Thank you for saying that, Justin, is so true. All right, well, Anna, final, you get the final well, word. Well said, I, I, yeah, I'll just reference Representative Hollins, the Assistant Majority Leader from St. Paul in the House said on her floor speech, you know, climate's important to her. But she said, I don't know if, if folks know this, but BIPOC communities tend to be very distrustful of the climate movement because they haven't felt like they've been a part of it. So we are we are absolutely tasked with making sure um, that we are implementing policy that is, you know, I, the, the phrase I have in, about it in my head all the time is anything about us without us is not for us. And so that we're bringing everyone along and we're incorporating voices um, that historically have not been heard or prioritized. So yeah, I think that's a great question and something that we're always um, working to answer thoughtfully and trying to learn more all the time. Thank you, Anna. Well, thank you everyone for being with us, Justin, Anna, 
Michael, your last webinar as executive director. It must be freeing to know I'm not going to have you on the hook for these, um, but you're a wonderful guest and I'll miss, miss doing webinars with you in the future. So thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. You can also make a donation on our website and get your tickets to join us for 100% Fresh, the party of the summer on June 8th. Tickets are running out, so if you want to join us, reserve them today and we will see you soon.